Good morning and welcome to another episode of Crime Over Coffee. We're your host. I'm Abby. And I'm Erica. Today, I'm going to be telling you a story about Jennifer Kessie and how she vanished into thin air. Support yourself a strong cup of joe and let's get into it. Jennifer Kessie grew up in Tampa, Florida with her mom, Joyce, her dad, Drew, and her younger brother, Logan. Everyone described Jennifer and Logan as inseparable, saying that they were each other's best friends. Jennifer was known for her long blonde hair, which in any of the pictures that we'll post on our social media and all the flyers that you see, her hair is very long, very blonde, and beautiful. Her mom talked about how when Jennifer was a kid, she never wanted to cut her hair because she wanted it so long. So she had hair that was down past her butt as a kid, which I can relate because that's how long my hair was when I was younger. I had no idea. (laughs) Yeah, I used to have super, super long hair and it was just Shirley Temple curly and it was nuts. In 2006, Jennifer was 24 years old and living in Orlando, Florida and working as a financial analyst for a company called Westgate Resorts. Her and her boyfriend, Rob Allen, had been together for about a year at this time and had just gotten back from a vacation where they went to the Caribbean island of St. Croix to visit some of his friends. They had gotten home on January 22nd, and Jennifer had stayed the night at his house that night and then just gotten up early for work and drove there Monday morning. So on the way home on the 23rd, she left work around 6 p.m. and headed home, pretty much just excited to be home after a long vacation, which I can relate to. Vacation is nice, but sometimes coming home to my own bed is also nice. It would be tiring to come back from vacation and still not go home, get up, go to work, and then have to go home. Oh, I definitely wouldn't have unpacked when I got back. (laughs) I Yeah, and she didn't, actually. But I think also... So her and her boyfriend had, like I said, been together for about a year. They actually lived about four hours apart and they spent every weekend together. So she either stayed at his place or he stayed at her place. So I think that she was already, she was familiar with that place. So even though it wasn't her home, it was kind of like her home. I think she was comfortable enough with it. Was her work close to her home then? Yeah, her work was close to her home, but I don't know exactly how far, but I know it was in the same like town. Jennifer's dad, Drew, talked about how she was actually really intelligent and in the year and a half that she had been out of college she had already been promoted three different times at work which is pretty impressive jennifer had graduated from the university of central florida where she had been in a sorority called alpha delta pi and she had made quite a few friends there and she was always hanging out with them while she was there and her parents talked about how smart she was and the fact she loved to read she loved to learn and she was even able to talk in sentences at a year old which is also pretty impressive because some one-year-olds are still learning to just say like two-word phrases and they always talked about how she was just like ahead of the game even in college and then again once she started her job at westgate resorts As I mentioned, she had her boyfriend, Rob Allen, and they'd been together for about a year. They had met at a restaurant and they were in love. I mean, that's everybody just saw the two of them and just assumed that 
everything was great. And things really were great with them. They didn't really have any issues. They'd had a few arguments off and on, but it was never anything that was like super concerning. And her parents loved him. One thing about Jennifer was that she was super into family and safety. And so she was constantly checking in with all of her family members, almost obsessively. And it was, I mean, it's kind of weird to obsessively check in on all of your family members. When she went on her vacation with her boyfriend to the Caribbean island, she was only there for four days and she called her just her dad three different times from the island just to check in and make sure everything was okay. It is a little bit more on the extreme side, but I also know that like, I'm like that too, in a sense with my mom. I talk to her probably more often than most people do. And not a lot of people, or not all of them, I guess, have like the family group text messages that like, I know you guys do, um, where you're checking in less, more casually, I guess. Yeah. And the reason that she was so obsessive about it, which her parents do talk about, is Drew and Joyce had actually been held at gunpoint before they'd had kids. So and I don't they didn't go into detail too much about the entire situation. But when they had kids, they said that they did everything they could to teach their children safety. And they kind of instilled it in their heads that checking in and making sure everything's okay, like is really important to make sure you're checking on your friends and your family. And that was how Jennifer was. Her friends referred to her as Mother Hen because she was constantly like the mom in the situations and always checking in on everybody and making sure everyone was okay when they were going out. And she would call and talk to them all the time, which I relate to the calling people all the time because how often do I text? Like if I want something, I'm calling and sometimes it annoys people, but I would rather just call you and just get it over with instead of sending texts back and forth for hours which Abby knows. Which, unfortunately, either way is not a good way to reach me. <laughs> no, it's not. And Bryce gets annoyed when I call him and I'm just like, I have a super quick question. He's like, you could have just texted it. I'm like, no, it's so much easier to call you and bother you. But so I can relate to Jennifer on that level of needing to call and check in on her friends. Jennifer had just moved to a condo shortly before our story starts in January of 2006. The condo was near the mall at Millennia, which was a new mall that had been built and apparently it was super popular. And Drew and Joyce talked about how she was super excited for it because she was a big shopper and that was something that she just loved to do in her free time. On January 23rd in the evening after she's home from work, she does her typical routine. She's pretty much ready to go to bed. She's not unpacking her clothes from vacation. She's like, I just am going to go to bed. I'll worry about it later, which is me. I go on vacation and oh, weeks later, my bags are still unpacked. And then I'm like, I should probably do something with this. But she called and she talked to her mom. She talked to her best friend and she talked to Rob on the phone before she went to bed. Her last call was to her boyfriend, Rob, at 9.57 p.m. on the 23rd. And everyone reports that there was nothing out of the ordinary when they talked on the phone with her. It was perfectly normal and she seemed fine. She was just ready to go to bed and get up because she had to get up for work the next day. However, on January 24th, 
Jennifer doesn't show up for work. And I don't know exactly what time she had to be at work. I'm assuming it was maybe like 8.30 because her mom talked about how Jennifer would leave for work between 7.30 and 8 every morning. So I'm assuming she had to be there about 8.30. But Jennifer's boss was concerned because she was never late. And if she was ever running late for anything, she would call or text and like let you know. She was super responsible in that way. And there was an 11 o'clock meeting that day and she just doesn't show up. So the boss is like, okay, something's really not right because this is way out of Jennifer's character. The boss actually knows Jennifer's parents. And so he calls her dad and says, hey, is everything okay with Jennifer? Because she was supposed to be here and she's not at work. Like, is she sick? Is she, is everything okay with the family? And her dad's like, uh, everything, or she was fine last night when we talked to her on the phone, but we'll try to call her and see if we can get a hold of her. So her dad calls her phone. It goes directly to voicemail. Her mom calls her phone directly to voicemail. They keep trying to get a hold of her, but they can't. It just keeps going straight to voicemail. Joyce and Drew said that they immediately just knew something was wrong. They felt their stomachs just drop and they were so concerned in that moment. So they call the boyfriend, Rob, which makes sense. That's probably my first call too. And ask if he'd heard from her. And he says, you know, I haven't heard from her, which is weird because she always calls me when she's on her way to work. But because Rob had not heard from her, he called her and texted her, but didn't hear back. And he didn't think too much of it. He was like, we just got back from vacation. She probably has a really busy schedule. So maybe she just doesn't have the time to call or text me at the moment. But at this point, he's now concerned. Her parents decide to drive to her condo, which is about 90 minutes away, and her younger brother, Logan, comes with them. On the way there, they decide to call the manager of the complex and ask them if her Chevy Malibu was parked in her parking spot, number 2226. But he tells them that there's no vehicle parked in that spot. So the family is even more concerned at this point because they're like, what happened between leaving for work? and getting to work because she never made it. When they get to her condo, they notice that nothing is out of place. Her suitcase is still packed. The bed showed that it had been slept in, and there were a few outfits laid out as if she was trying to decide what to wear that morning. The towel was still damp, which makes sense because her parents got there about 3.30 in the afternoon. And like I mentioned, her mom said she typically left between 7.30 and 8. So it would make sense for the towel to still be a little damp. From her shower? Mm Mm-hmm. The only things that were missing from the house were her purse, her keys, and her cell phone. The can of mace that she typically carried with her was on the counter, which wouldn't be super weird because she had just been traveling, so she wouldn't have had it on her. Yeah, she probably just hadn't reattached it to her lanyard or keychain or whatever she typically uses. And that was, I think, the main assumption from everyone, but it was just kind of concerning because they're like, if something did happen, she didn't have her mace to try to protect her. Her parents at this point are like, okay, this is really not right. There's something absolutely wrong. And so they call the police. They said that the police walked in the home, said she had a fight with her boyfriend. She'll be back and walked out. And that was that was what the police did in that moment. The parents are obviously super pissed because they're like, something's definitely wrong with Jennifer because this is not like her at all. So they start, they're like, we're just going to do this on our own. So they start calling all the friends of Jennifer. No one's heard from her. And they got everybody together, friends, family, everyone. And they said that by rush hour, they had missing flyers printed and posted on the route that she would take to and from work. And there were people, all the friends and family were standing outside 
holding missing flyers, talking to people, like handing out the flyers, asking them to put it in their cars. And there's actual news footage showing them making their best effort to try to find Jennifer and see what's going on. Which is a crazy quick turnaround because you said that they got to her um, condo at 3.30 p.m. and to have that all done and ready by that, they were working fast and i think they were because they were like we need to just get this out there immediately and that is one thing that i've noticed throughout this entire case that i've been researching is that the family is so big on advocating for finding jennifer and they are doing everything in their power how often do we hear about how the first hours are so critical so it is very important that They had this information going out to people and the public so quickly. Well, and that's what her dad, Drew, said. He said, you know, if somebody is taken, then within the first three hours, they're pretty much done with at that point. I've always heard the first 48 hours, but maybe once you get to a certain age, it kind of the time frame gets smaller. So I want to tell you a little bit about the apartment complex that she was staying in, which is stuff that the family kind of found out more about as they were trying to find Jennifer. It was things they didn't know before they moved in. And her dad, Drew, and her mom, Joyce, actually said that if they had known the things that they know now about the apartment, they never would have let their daughter live there. They knew that it was a pretty rough area that she was trying to move into, but they were in the process of trying to fix it up. So they were converting this apartment complex into a condo area. More than half of the condos were actually still unoccupied. And so there were just a few people living there, which is something that also comes into play later. There were no security cameras, believe it or not. And there was a construction crew that was coming in and out frequently. So the secure, there's quotes around that, secure gates were left open for the construction crew to just come in and out. You didn't have to put a code in or anything. You know, even with the secure quote unquote gates, at apartment complexes, there's so many ways around that. Like, how many times do you see people just follow a car in? Frequently. I mean, even if you live there, it's easier than getting out your fob or whatever. And I feel like you can only secure it so much. It, it does not help that it was open all the time. It might as well have not been secure. Yeah. And there was actually behind the apartment complex, there was a big wooded area. And the wooded area was completely open, too. So if you had gone through the woods, you could just get to the apartment complex. There was no fence through the wooded area. Which, you know, most places don't have fences and security around them. But I guess from what you're saying, since the area was in, it would have been nice to have that. The other thing with the apartment complex is that the master set of keys that was used to unlock the complex had been stolen about a month before Jennifer went missing. So that means that whoever stole the set of keys had the ability to unlock any condo door in the entire complex that they wanted. I'm going to go ahead and guess that they didn't switch out the locks. Nope, they didn't even tell the the tenants. They just ignored it. And then once she went missing, it came out. And I think that the dad, so the dad drew, um, he kind of, he posts a lot of stuff. And I, I love it because it was really helpful. I don't remember. I think it was a little while later that it was like month or a couple months after that she disappeared that they finally ended up finding out that that was even a thing that had happened. Later in the day, there are actually detectives that are finally assigned to the case. And I think it's because they started to realize, okay, maybe she didn't just have a fight with her boyfriend. Maybe something was wrong. And the issue with this is the family had had so many people there trying to do the flyers and everything that... 
they had over 15 people in her condo. So by the time the detectives decided to take the case seriously, they got to the condo and they're like, the crime scene's been contaminated. We can't do anything with it. And that hurts my heart. But she was entered into the missing persons database by 9 p.m. that night. And there was a bolo ordered for her and her car. What is a bolo? It's the acronym for be on the lookout. So they were just getting it to all the police departments to be on the lookout for a black Chevy Malibu and a girl with long blonde hair. By Wednesday morning, which was the 25th, her disappearance was in the newspaper and televised all over. On January 26th, so Thursday morning, the police receive a phone call from a tenant at Huntington on the Green, which is another apartment complex that's about a mile away from Jennifer's condo. And they call saying that they saw a car that looked like the one on the news sitting in their parking lot. And they're like, it really looks like hers. And I just want to report it. And the police are like, interesting. Let's go check it out. So they go and check it out. And it turns out that the car is Jennifer's. The license plate, everything matches. Was this an apartment complex that had a security gate as well? This one did not have a security gate, no. But it was in an area that was actually known for drug activity, this specific area. And so police knew that it was kind of a sketchy area to go to. The mystery has been solved. Here at Crime Over Coffee, our go-to caffeinated beverage for every episode is Fire Department Coffee. And you can get some as well and save 15% with our exclusive coupon code CRIMEPOD15. Owned and operated by firefighters and veterans, 10% of all their proceeds go directly to helping sick and injured first responders. And with an incredible range of flavors and caffeine strength, it's a company that all of us can easily support. So please go to firedeptcoffee.com and use our coupon code CRIMEPOD15 to support us, support them, help first responders, and get some incredibly tasty coffee along the way. So the police have found her car and it's time to start investigating it. But they want to bring Rob to the car. Why? This is what bothers me so much. They thought that maybe Rob had something to do with Jennifer's disappearance. And so they wanted to watch his expression as they opened the trunk of the car to see what his reaction was. But I think he would have a reaction either way because he was nervous that his girlfriend's body might be in there. That's the thing. Like, what? what is he supposed to do if you open the car and his girlfriend's body's in there? What? What reaction are you supposed to have? Well, if you ask certain people, you're supposed to have a certain reaction in these situations, you know? I just people really do pick that apart and as much as as far as the police say we want to watch the reaction like it's it's not something everyone agrees with but it's definitely something people will point at so I'm not surprised I just struggle I'm fine with sitting here and analyzing 911 calls all day long and like tearing apart the words that people use when they call 911 but I just this is a whole different thing like they're opening the trunk of the car and there could be a dead body in there like I wish that police had looked in the trunk to know whether or not something was in there and then watched the reaction of him. But then he still wouldn't know. So I feel like the reaction wouldn't change. Exactly. That's what. So they could have looked and seen like if there was a body in there or not. If there's a body in there, don't open the car to show him because that's just a little nuts. The other main reason that they wanted Rob there was because Rob had admitted to having a little argument on the phone with Jennifer on the last phone call that they had. And so the police thought that this was reason enough that he would kill his girlfriend. Which, for some people, I guess it is. Well, you obviously have to investigate the significant other. Bringing him to the car, I don't know about that personally, but 
it makes sense to investigate him to either he is guilty or rule him out so they can find other plausible suspects. Exactly. So the police open the car and watch his response. There's like a bunch of officers there, half of them watching his response, half of them looking in the trunk. And to everyone's relief and disappointment, there's nothing in the trunk of the car. The police bring the car in and they actually can call that a crime scene because nobody's contaminated it yet. It was they just found it. So they actually search the car. And one thing that Rob said in an interview that he had done was that the seat was moved and it wasn't where Jennifer normally would have had it. Was it further back or further up? He didn't say. He just said it wasn't where she normally would have had it. Because I feel like that's different. Because I mean, how many times do you push it back just to chill or relax? You know, I don't know why she would be over there one mile over sitting in her car relaxing, but... Police had the theory that maybe she was just hanging out there for a little while. And I'll go into that in a little bit. Um... There were valuables in the car, including a DVD player that was strapped in, and nothing had been stolen. Was her phone, keys, and wallet in there? No. Those were missing. There was gas in the tank, so it suggested that the car did not go very far at all and too much out of the route that Jennifer would normally take. And basically, the police believe that what had happened was that she had gone to this area to purchase drugs... And had gotten so intoxicated and then started to walk home. And on her walk home, she ended up falling into some kind of trouble. This theory was pretty much debunked, though, when they talked to her parents and her friends and family. And they were like, that is not Jennifer at all. Like, she's lived a pretty straight-laced life throughout her entire 24 years. So police are like, all right, let's keep investigating. They end up finding two surveillance cameras that are on a nearby roof. And they're like... Let's go check out the security cameras. Did they work? Yes. <gasps> what? Let's talk about that for a second. <laughs> when I was researching this, I was like, oh, no, these cameras aren't going to work. <laughs> and then it's like, these cameras work. Wow. What? It was a miracle. So I was really excited about that. But. <laughs> oh, no. There's always a but. And I even put it in capital on my script here. But the surveillance video gives you nothing. The one camera is like a wide angle and you can see the car backing into the spot that it was parked in. And you can see someone get out of the car that is not Jennifer, but it's too grainy. And the FBI has tried to do anything they can to the footage, but they cannot see the person getting out of the car. The second camera shows the driver walking and they are wearing khaki pants with a white t-shirt. And the footage is so blurry, they can't even tell if it's male or female. And the driver got really, really lucky in these photos. And Abby, I'm going to show you the photos. And I'll post them on our social media as well for you guys. Give them to me. So that thick bar that's there. So the surveillance video takes a picture every three seconds. Was it a video or pictures? They say video, but it was apparently taking... There was a surveillance camera. So I think that one was just taking pictures and the other one was an actual video of the car. So a picture was taken every three seconds and that thick bar right there, the driver just happens to be... His face is covered by that those thick bars every three seconds in every single shot. You can't see their face. You can't see anything. You can't tell if it's male or female. So it's definitely a hard to see photo but for some reason i'm getting like this 80s kid vibe 
Does it kind of look like they're wearing, has like a weird bowl cut? Yeah. And actually, the mom said the same thing. She said that it was a kid. She didn't say the 80s thing, but she said that when she first saw it, she's like, this looks like an adolescent. That's what I mean. That was my initial thought. Yeah. And that was the mom's first thought, too. She said that she told the police when she watched it, she was like, that's definitely an adolescent. And they were like, how, where did you get that? And she's like, uh, they have abnormally big feet and long ganky legs. Like it looks like an adolescent. And then if that is the person's hair, it looks like more of a like teenager haircut, I would say. Yeah. And it could have just been a young man. The dad said that the first thing he noticed was that the pants have look like they have a rubber band around the ankle. Oh, like joggers almost. Yeah. Like maybe they were, well, maybe he put a rubber band around it to, because he was riding a bike and he didn't want his pants caught in the, in the chain, or he was using a trimmer to work on the lawn and he had put a rubber band around it so that his or his pants didn't get caught up in the trimmer. So the dad thinks it literally looks like there's a rubber band around it as opposed to just having the elastic ankle yes. part. Which I can kind of see, I guess, if you look at the leg that you can see. I guess I can kind of see that. They're definitely not your typical pants. No, they're not. One of the things that the dad pointed out was that the landscaping crew that was working at the condo that Jennifer lived in they wore the similar uniforms to what the person that got out of the vehicle and then was walking was wearing, which was something that was interesting because they start to kind of look at the landscapers and the construction crew a little later on. So I'll go into that more, but it would make sense too that somebody that was a landscaper could be an adolescent, like a young kid doing that job. It would make sense to look into them because they had easy access to Jennifer and where she lived. Also, when you said that, I was initially trying to think of a reason they would be moving her car. And like, if they had, I don't know if this is too far-fetched. I wonder if there would be any scenario where they needed to do some work where her car was parked and they were just going to move it over for her and she okayed it and gave them the keys to. And uh, those are all theories that we can entertain. And her dad agrees that they're, they're, these are all theories that can be entertained, but they're just so unlike Jennifer. And I'm going to go a little bit more into detail about some of the things that she would do with the construction workers and the landscapers in regards to the work that they were doing at her place. While the police are investigating, they bring the dogs out so that they can search everything and try to get an idea and they want to just start at the car. So the dogs trace a path from the car directly to the condo that she lived in. And the search dogs went straight to the bushes that were by and underneath her condo. So the police are immediately thinking, we're going to find her body like in this area. So they combed through the wooded areas and the fields by where she lived. And they found random shoes and shirts and random pieces of clothing. And they were asking, they kept asking Drew, like, is this Jennifer's? And none of it was Jennifer's. I feel, though, if it's an area that's kind of maybe sketchy or lower income, there could be homeless people living in that area, and it might make sense that you'd find some stuff like that around. And unfortunately, they were not able to find anything that Drew believed had belonged to Jennifer, and they had over 1,400 people searching for the first weekend after Jennifer went missing. Here's the thing about this case that I'm already kind of like my brain's trying to figure out is... They found her car so close to her apartment complex that 
you wonder if she would be near it or if they just got rid of the car closely for some reason and took her somewhere. And that that's a theory, too. Am I getting too ahead of you? Maybe, because I'm about to go into the theory. So, okay. it, let's, let, yeah, we'll go into theories. Um, I'm going to put a pin in that one. Yeah, put a pin in it. We'll go into the theories right after we have a word from our sponsor. The suspects that the police start to look at are, obviously, they look at the people in her life that she's closest to. They rule out the boyfriend. They rule out family members. And then they decide, let's check out the ex-boyfriend. Who? They never actually come out and say his name, but they do investigate him because the dad says that he was devastated when Jennifer broke up with him and he had been trying to like get in touch with her and try to talk to her because he wanted to be together. And she was just like, yeah, I got a boyfriend that I've been with for a year now. So no. Yeah. How long ago did they break up? They had been broken up for a little over a year now. And the main thing that really threw the police to, like, want to check into him is when they found out that he had actually been at the bar across the street from her condo the night that she disappeared. And it was called the Blue Martini. But obviously, he denies having anything to do with it. And I couldn't find anything where they, like, investigated it any more than that. They just, he said he didn't have anything to do with it. And they're like okay nobody would lie about it so obviously you're good do they know if he knew where she lived at the time like did he know that he was across from her apartment i don't i don't know the other suspects that the police look into was the construction crew that was working at the condo there was a couple things about them jennifer just told her family and her boyfriend all the time that she felt super uncomfortable around them and she just felt like they were constantly like staring at her and watching her which you kind of need to trust your gut instinct in situations like that. So she would always, when she was like, if it was dark and she was getting out of her car, even just to walk to her door, she would talk on the phone to somebody. She was super cautious about everything safe. And she would leave work to come home so that she could let the painters in so that they could do some work. But the entire time, she would always stand there in the doorway and talk on the phone with someone. Her dad, her boyfriend, her mom. She was always just super cautious, which is, I think, part of the reason this case is so hard for me. I've struggled with researching this case. And I think it's because of that, knowing that she was on the lookout all the time and like still so cautious and something terrible still happened, even though she did everything she could to make sure she was safe. The issue with the construction crew was that when the police went to interview them, they were all gone. The construction crew just kind of vanished. Were they done constructing in that area? No, they all just disappeared because a bunch of them were illegal immigrants and they didn't want to get involved. So they all just disappeared. So the police had no one to even interview. They did find out from the manager of the condo that some of the construction workers had been staying in empty units while they were working there because it was easy for them just to work and then just go to bed right there. But it could have been any one of them that had stolen the keys for the apartments and they could have been getting in and out of apartments anytime they wanted. Did they look into like supers or managers or people who worked at the complex? I don't know that they looked into that. So there is a page that Jennifer's dad, Drew, updates frequently and he answers questions that people have. And I was reading through it and he did talk about there was somebody that had posted that she'd lived in the condos five months after Jennifer went missing and she talked about how the sales team and the manager were super shady and she thought that somebody should talk to them 
because she was having issues with other people, like random people having access to her condo because they, a bunch of random people had keys. Well, and if they weren't changing them, if they got stolen, I'm not surprised. And Jennifer's dad, Drew, said that he had found out that at least five women in the complex had someone enter their condo unannounced while they were like home alone because they had a key. Yeah, that's creepy. Mm-hmm. We had that happen once when we were staying in New York City. We'd gone on vacation there forever ago. I was really young, but we were in the hotel room and it was just me and my sister because my mom and stepdad had gone to get some, I don't know, get something from downstairs. And someone just like unlocks our door and opens it. And we had the little chain thing so they couldn't get in. But I was like, normally room service will knock. And so it was like, who had a key and who was trying to get in? And it creeped us out. That is really creepy. The other thing that Jennifer's dad said is that when they were in the maintenance office, they saw a key making machine with a full box of uncut keys next to it, meaning that they could just make keys on location super fast and whenever they wanted. And that wasn't something they found out until after Jennifer was missing. Makes me wonder if if apartment complexes do that sometimes well even if they do i think that should be behind a lock and key so that random people can't just go in there and make keys 100 percent. but it was just a little side that i was like oh that makes sense not to have it out obviously but to have your own for you know the situations where i know where i've been in apartment complexes if you lose your key you pay for them to replace the whole lock on the door and all that stuff so by the time police were really able to identify anyone that was on the crew, they weren't able to connect anyone to the case because it had been so long. And they were just like, we're kind of, there's not really much we can do here. The other suspect that they looked at was a married colleague of hers. This guy was obsessed with Jennifer and all of the coworkers and managers said that it was very concerning. She told her parents that he was constantly asking her to go out with him. And she was always like, I don't want to go out with you. I have a but- boyfriend he was also married there's that okay couple things making it a little fishy already yeah she told her parents about it but there wasn't much she that she could do she just kept telling him i don't want to go out with you and everybody at work had like witnessed things on top of it he was late the day that she went missing hmm coincidence or yeah so the manager at westgate resorts overheard him talking and after she went missing the first comment that he made about her missing was quote well she is probably eaten by gators by now end quote just really not a normal thing to say about a missing person so did they check the swamp areas i know there's a lot in florida but that would make me kind of wonder if i should check it out a little well yeah so this comment is what made the manager report to the police and say, like, I think you guys should check this guy out because he's a little sketchy. And they are like, OK, so they start to look into it and they find out that he was late to work because he had been pulled over for a speeding ticket. And then his temper got the best of him and he got feisty with the police officer, ripped up his ticket and got super verbally like aggressive. And he was arrested for a little while. They took him into the jail to like cool him down he still wants to work after yeah that's kind of like a dedication to the job Yeah, no you think at that at that point in the day you just call it one you know i did wonder and i don't know if this was something they reported when he was speeding was it in an area in between his house and work or was he off track at all 
I don't know. I know that this was enough for them to stop investigating him, though. And they were like, he just is an asshole who wants to say that she was eaten by gators, which is just insane. Because you went from loving her and like being obsessed with her to eh, probably eaten by gators. Yeah, my I thought my thought process went to what if he was speeding away from doing something bad? That was my first thought. But they they were like, no, he's he's cleared. I'm sure the time frame didn't match. Yeah. Nothing really happened until a little later in 2006 when someone says that they saw a white truck with what looked to be Jennifer in it. And it was pulling into this wooded area and then it left the wooded area. So they're like, all right, you know what? We'll search it. So they go and they search this wooded area and over 100 people come out and search. And they're investigating and investigating and they find absolutely nothing. In 2008, though, a construction worker that was had been working at the condo that Jennifer lived in was arrested for statutory rape. And he tells police that he did work there. He's he agrees with that. And he says that Jennifer had told him that he could come in and do the work and to just lock up her door on the way out. And Jennifer's dad is like this did not happen. I was on the phone with Jennifer the last time you guys were in there and she didn't say that. She never would say that. She always stood there and talked on the phone the entire time because you guys creeped her out. But he took a polygraph test and he passed it, which obviously they're super reliable. So they went with it. So once he passes the polygraph test, they decide that they're just going to let him go. They're like, we're not going to keep investigating you. Another thing that the family did to try to get Jennifer's information out there is they put a deck of playing cards in the jails around the area for the inmates to play with that had a picture of her and her information. I think I've heard of this case because yeah. I remember that. Well, they ha- they do it with multiple. Oh, okay. Yeah. It's like a thing that they do. But so the playing cards, each card has like a different person's information on it. Oh. Yeah. So they put her, they get her information in there. And then, you know, the inmates are playing with the cards. And in December of 2008, an inmate comes forward. And this inmate's name is David Russ. And he is a convicted killer who was on death row in Florida. And he said that he saw her picture on the cards and he wanted to come forward with information. But there is a condition to this. He says that he'll only tell the information to her father in a face-to-face meeting. So Drew, being the man that he is and wanting to find his daughter, he's like, okay, I'm willing to try anything. So he is like, all right, let's 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 do this meeting. And the police warned Drew that David is not the most honest guy. And he has tried to pin things on people before. He's a liar. He tries to come forward with information all the time about all these cases. So it might not be real. But Drew's like, I want to try anyways. I, I feel like you have to at least go check it out. So Drew goes in there and meets with him. And David goes on and on and on for about 20 minutes, babbling about really nothing before he finally says, all right, this is the information I have. And then he brings up that man that the police already interviewed that was the construction worker. And he's like, he's like, you, yeah, you already like, it's this guy. And they tell, he only tells them things that has been made public that they've already, you know, investigated. And it's a complete waste of Drew's time. So what do you think happened to Jennifer? There's a couple different theories 
her dad's theory, not one that I didn't really even go into at the moment. Her dad thinks that maybe she was a victim of sex trafficking and she's still alive somewhere or having been trafficked. Could it have been one of the construction workers or landscaping crew, some random person? Or there's that slight chance that maybe she walked away and had the construction worker drive her car over there and leave it. I'm not really 100% certain on this one. The sex trafficking thing, I don't know how common it is in that area, but it happens a lot more than people even realize. I know the statistics are a lot higher than most know. That could be possible. It seems like it had to have been some type of like opportunity thing because it sounds like she left for work and maybe was getting in her car and someone like jumped her or attacked her there. Which is possible. Florida is actually in the top four states of for human human trafficking, the highest. Well, then, I mean, that's possible, but and it would go along with that, them waiting kind of in this area that's possibly could be a little sketchy, seeing a woman by herself getting into a car and just blitzing her. And a lot of times when they're trying to find people for trafficking, they are looking for people, they, they, they pay attention and they kind of stalk you almost a little bit before they take you. And so it's possible that they had been stalking her for days or weeks in advance just to get an idea of like her routine and to know like oh she normally leaves for work between this time and this time so if we get her right between then it would have had to been though before she got back from vacation because she wasn't she just on vacation so they would have been following her possibly before that yeah some people wonder if maybe there was somebody that had gotten into her apartment into her condo and was kind of lying in wait for her you would think there would be some type of struggle and i think it it makes sense that she clearly got up and showered and got ready for work and her phone keys and wallet were gone or purse possibly i'm not sure if you said wallet or purse but that sounds like the things you grab when you go to leave to go to work you know what i mean yeah and i mean the yeah it just seemed like she was just she'd showered it seemed like she was just making all the moves to just go to work and that somebody might have just attacked her as she was going out to her car or it's possible maybe she even got in her car and started to drive and somebody she got to stop at a stoplight and somebody held a gun at her or something. I mean, I mean, she could have she probably didn't get very far since the car was just a mile away. I also wonder, was her apartment locked when her parents went to check it out? I believe so. Because that would also signify her locking it to leave. Yeah. Another thing is so her car that got dropped off in the parking lot. The timestamp on the surveillance camera is about is around noon so that would have if she'd left between 7 30 and 8 that gives about four hours that anything could have happened before the car was dropped off oh, and i wonder if they took the car and brought it back there thinking that was her complex and just kind of got mixed up that's possible or they were just trying to throw them off a little bit i want to just say something at the moment this case has been extremely rough for me to research and i told abby that the entire time that i was doing it and i don't know what it is about this case specifically that has made it so tough for me i want to direct you guys to a couple sites where you guys can learn more about this case and hear more from her parents they have a website that you can go to that's findjenniferkessie.com and there's all kinds of information there and you can just get to know the case really further and you can see photos of her and videos the surveillance video all of it and drew updates the website daily there is an update as recently as 
So we're recording this on February 21st, and there's an update as recent as February 19th. So two days ago, he just made a new update, and he's constantly answering questions that people have and clarifying things. So you guys can go check out. Um, There's also a GoFundMe page where they are working on trying to raise money to cover all of the expensive for all the research they're doing because they hired a private investigator. So police are not currently investigating this case. They just kind of stopped investigating because it had kind of gone cold in their eyes. And so the Drew and Joyce decided that they needed to pay out of pocket to really get this case going. So they actually bought basically they basically own the rights of the case file now for Jennifer and they are investigating it with the help of a private investigator and this is all coming out of pocket so if you guys want to make a donation you can on the GoFundMe page there's a link to it on the website there's also a Facebook page that's called Find Jennifer Kessie and you can go there and get more information I mean they just have information all over and then if you have any tips, anything that you can, rem- like if you were in Florida at this time and you remember anything or you happen to have seen her since then, anything like that, you can call and remain anonymous 1-800-423-8477. That's the crime lines number for Central Florida. Or you can call the family. They have a tip line and you can call 941 941- Two zero one four zero zero nine, and I'm gonna go ahead and end this episode with an audio clip from Jennifer's mother. What I would really hope for people who become aware of Jennifer's uh, journey is it can happen to you. None of us are invincible. None of us are exempt from crime. You can be doing the right thing in the right place, and if evil wants you evil will get you and evil stole Jennifer but evil will not steal her memory from any of us thanks for listening to this week's episode of crime over coffee you can find us on instagram at crime over coffee or on facebook at crime over coffee podcast where all of our photo and video content for each episode can be found you can also email us your thoughts and case suggestions at crimeovercoffeepod at outlook.com. Also, all of our sources can be found in the show notes of each episode. If you would like, you can support us by going to anchor.fm slash crimeovercoffee. Donations are greatly appreciated and assist in making the podcast possible. Other ways to support us include recommending us to friends and family, giving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, and subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening medium. So again, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. 